Welcome to part one of an exclusive five-part interview with Joey Barton. This episode is all about Joey Barton, the manager, and we discuss how he ended up becoming the manager of Fleetwood, what his managerial style and ambitions for the future are, and he reflects openly and honestly on his journey into management so far, which is absolutely fascinating. Without further ado, this is CFB with Joey Barton, part one, Joey Barton, the manager. today on Football CFB by Joey Barton, a player who played in the Premier League for many years, played in France as well, now managing at Fleetwood. First of all, Joey, how are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm alright mate, yeah, apart from um, obviously all the, all the madness that's going on in the world around us all. Um, yeah, family are good, everyone's healthy and um, yeah, uh, really, really uh, thankful for what we've all got. I think I think this has been a good time to to reset um, a lot of people and 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 show them certainly what's important in, in not only their own lives but in society in, in in general around us. Absolutely, completely agree. And I'm interested before we talk about the, through the interview in general. How are you coping with this, both personally and and as a football manager as well? <laughs> It's one of those things, isn't it? You just have to get on with it. I don't think it's um, it's it's a situation that is bit bizarre. Um, something that is completely and utterly uh, unprecedented for for anybody. You know, whether it's myself who's eighteen months into management, or a Roy Hodgson who's you know probably 35, 40 years into management. I don't think anybody of any experience is. Has, has dealt with this. I had, I had my father around. Um, he's been coming around to talk through the garden gate, and we've been going to my grandmother's to talk through the garden gate. And it, it, it's it's a strange time. And, and and both of those people, you know, um, huge experience, a lot more than me. I haven't experienced anything of it. I mean, my grandmother was born at the back end of the war, so she never really had the wartime experience. And obviously, everybody born subsequently won't have won't have had anything like this to deal with. Where they've you know, had to deal with a national um, crisis on this scale. So, um, yeah, you have to be thankful, as I said, for what you've got. Um, and, you know, we will get back to, to doing what we do on, on, a, on a, for our day jobs. And the key is that we do that as, as safely as possible with, you know, as many members of society as we possibly can. Because, you know, I think last time I checked, we were on about 13,000 dead people in the in the in the UK because of it and you know you think I played at like Queen's Park Rangers and you know we used to get regularly you know 13 14 15 16,000 people so so in essence uh, it, it's it's a lot of people when you when you think about it in terms of football crowd and you know the, the, the ramifications of that the, the people's brothers sisters mums dads aunties uncles loved ones and you know the the, the scale of that um, loss and devastation is um, something that I think we all have to be, you know, very, very mindful of as as we tiptoe into a future beyond uh, this coronavirus uh, pandemic. In terms of yourself, before we talk about your playing career, I want to start with your managerial career. You've started at Fleetwood Town. Why, why Fleetwood? Why did that job attract you? Your style, like as a manager, because. As a player, it's safe to say, based on the conversation we've already had, you set very high standards. Is that what you demand as a manager each and every day as well? I, I just, um, I, I think initially when I came in, I think I, I was probably setting 
um, too many um, ch challenges for the players that were, were were too much too soon, and there was a a frustration on on certainly on my behalf that that that, that we couldn't get to that level, and it was more about a level of consistency in the first season. Um, there was some really really good performances, some really really good moments, but uh, I've got me eighteen months all jumping through the door here, um, and it was difficult for us to to reach a level of consistency. Um, so that was very, very frustrating um, because you want to, you know, certainly in your first year in management, you know, you want to strive for, for a consistent output. We weren't able to do that. This season, we, we, we've obviously been able to do that a little bit better. And I think that's come with me kind of relaxing a little bit, you know, knowing the role, um, maybe not being as, in, as intense all the time as I was as a player and, and certainly as I was in the early stages of, of, of being a manager and you know you learn that it's a completely different skill set and the skill set that you needed to play um, and the skill set that you need to manage are, are two entirely different worlds um, and fortunately for me I've, I've, I've got a good staff around me um, some some key lieutenants people I really really trust uh, in key roles and you know they, they help me enormously on a daily basis and we, we've just got a really really good culture and it, it, it's nothing um, that I think you can just flip over from playing to management and just pick up in an instant. It just takes a lot of hard work. It takes getting beat. It takes um, having some bad moments as well where, where you are fully examined as a, as a group. That's players and, and staff. And you, you go through that, I think, process all the time in football. I just think it's a constant cycle of, you know, thinking you've got it, it, it cracked and, and then realising um, that you haven't and there's more hard work to do. There's a, it, it, you would kind of class it as a Sisyphean task. Um, so Sisyphus was, I think, banished by the Greek gods to uh, constantly keep rolling a stone up a hill until the, for eternity and it would roll back down and he'd have to roll it back up and down. And that was his punishment. Um, so something like painting, I think the, the San Francisco bridge is classed as a Sisyphean task. That you, you start painting it, and the minute you finish, you have to restart the, the painting again. So I think football management is is that you're building a team, you want to win, you, you're trying to get that momentum, you win games, and then and then you go, oh, actually the defending was quite poor. We've got to wait. We need to go back and fix that, and then you fix that problem, and then the attacks, something's not quite functioning. You have to go back, and, and you're just constantly in that cycle. So. I don't think it's ever the destination you, you, you arrive at. I think you're just constantly in that um, phase of team building. And when I look at all the great coaches and the great coaches you know, for, throughout history, um, the ones that are tried and tested, the ones that constantly come up in who's the greatest manager um, ever uh, conversations are people who have constantly built teams, whether it's you know, Sir Alex Ferguson, he had many, many cycles of of Manchester United, but with different first team coaches, with different playing personnel, with different prerogatives in terms of sometimes it was the younger players coming through, other times he'd buy the talent in. And when you go through him, you know, with the great Liverpool uh, years of dominance with, you know, the, the kind of boot room ethos, which was Fagan, Shankly, Paisley. Um, you look at, you know, there was a good documentary on the other day about the Lisbon Lions, all those kind of things. And, there's always not one person responsible. It's usually a, a, a great mix of coaches, players, 
and obviously sometimes a, a figurehead in, in a manager who can, you know, like Jürgen Klopp's doing in, in our city at this moment in time, who can galvanise a fan base to, to believe, you know, things that uh, are dreams for football fans, that's winning European Cups and winning leagues and doing that consistently. Um, you do get those, you know, iconic managers that come along from time to time who, who, who are able to captivate a, a fan base and, and do that. And I think if you can do that at whatever club you're at on whatever scale that is, I think, I think that is doing a good job. And that's what we hope to do at, at Fleetwood is, is give the people of the town, people of, of Fleetwood origin, um, a, 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 a point of reference when they tell people in the world where they're from. Uh, because it's not, well, near Blackpool, it's Fleetwood and, and we stand alone as Fleetwood Town and people understand where we are because of the success of, of our players on the pitch or, um, you know, actually giving them, you know, some tangible success of putting them in the championship and letting them compete against your Notts Forest, your Leeds and, and whoever, you know, sizable clubs are, are, are in that division. And I think that would be a fantastic achievement for the football club, certainly, um, in the short term and, and medium term to try to, to to achieve that. In terms of yourself, Joe, I'm really interested to ask you, in, when it comes to managing and coaching, do you do a lot of the hands-on coaching in the day-to-day or do you delegate that and watch it? How do you manage that on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, that was tough at the start um, because, you know, you come, I had, uh, I had the, a weird spell. So I, I, I'll answer your question a little bit from before. I went, Obviously, everyone knows about Rangers up in Scotland. So I'd gone Burnley, Rangers. After that Celtic game, realised I need to get myself back to an environment that's, that's productive for me. It, it ran its course at Rangers. I go back to Burnley. And, and then I got the ban up in Scotland. I think I got one game ban in Scotland and an 18-month ban in England, which kind of makes sense. Um, so, so in the end, it was a nine-month ban. So that pretty much put me out for one season. So one season for me was negatable. I was 34, 35 at the time, still relatively fit. Um, still got you know, pretty much my skeleton intact, no big knee injuries, no big serious um, impact on the body. That would mean you know, uh, me, me, the, the playing days would be curtailed a little bit. So I, my mind was I'm going back to play. Um, obviously quite close to Burnley and, and Daishi was like, look, keep yourself ticking over. You can't be in a football club. Get yourself back pre-season. We'll see where you are. So that was always the plan. I obviously had a year out working in the media, did podcasts and um, talk sport and round the green commentary and so on and so forth just to keep myself active and keep me hand in. And then I was coming back and it, I think it was about the February, March time. And then I think Kuve Rossler had lost his job. And I'd, I'd known Andy Pilly from eight, seven, eight years ago when I went and trained with uh, Fleetwood for a couple of weeks when I fell out with Mark Hughes before I ended up ultimately signing for Marseille on loan. So I'd, I'd, I'd kind of kept in contact with the club just to chart the course. And, and, and it was a, you know, obviously a very small club with big ambitions. But at the time, they'd just been promoted from the conference to Division 2 and they'd lost Jamie Vardy. I think he'd been sold to Leicester that summer. So I'd always just how you go and, and, and just watch the, for the results in the newspaper. Contrary to the media reports in, in the UK, when I got the job, they were saying, you know, me and Andy Pilly were best mates. We were, that's why I got the job. Now, I know him, but, you know, we've become very friendly since I've obviously taken the job, but, but we didn't know each other anywhere near the level that we do now um, when I initially took it. 
So I got a phone call in the March. I think Uwe had lost his job in the February and, and John Sheridan had been uh, putting in as manager and, and actually had not a bad start. And I got a phone call saying, would I be interested in um, interviewing for, for the permanent manager's job, which was to come up in the summer. And, and at that point, I was, I was in the south of France. My, my, a friend of mine from when I was at Marseille is a manager of a golf course and uh, I'd gone down to do a bit of training and have a game of golf with them. So I was just pottering around about 40 minutes from Nice, um, a golf course called Vidaban, which is a magical place. Um, and, and I was you know, doing a bit of training, having a game of golf, three or four months away from going back to pre-season with Burnley, in my eyes. Um, get a phone call, would you be interested in interviewing for a job? And a Fleetwood, I'm like, nah, not, not really, no, I want to go back and play. So it's, it's not something that is on my agenda. I thought, you know, I've got a point to prove that I can negate a year, a nine-month ban of football, and I wanted to go back in uh, and play. And over the next kind of 24, 40, they asked me to just think about it. Um, so I said, okay, look, how to care to see, I'll, I'll have a think about it. They, they knew I'd done me uh, B licence and I was on um, the final part of, of my UEFA licence. They'd obviously listened to the sport and podcast I did, which was with, you know, Gary Neville, Clive Woodward, Danny Cipriani, Alistair Campbell, kind of delving into um, a, a kind of performance space. Um, and... I think Andy Pilly had, had read my book and so on and so forth. And he, he just wanted to um, speak to me about the job. So um, I thought, you know what, I, 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 I'll have to just for life experience. Because at some point in the future, I want to be a coach and I want to be a manager. And I've never done a job interview in my life. I literally left school at 16, went to become a YTS uh, at Manchester City. And um, the rest is kind of history. So I'd never... I'd never really prepared for civilian life, uh, uh, how you do a job interview, because as a footballer, you live a relatively sheltered life. You know, everything's kind of done for you. And um, it's very, very easy to lose touch with, with reality, especially if you're, if, you're, if you're fortunate enough to win a right few quid. You know, you can very, very quickly f um, lose touch of um, reality, in, in, in essence, because, you know, it's not normal to earn... 40, 50, 60, 70, 80,000 pounds a week. You know, certainly when you're a kid off a council estate in Liverpool, like, like I was and you know, grew up, you know, in relative, relative comfy. But when you look back at it, you know, you were from a, a working class uh, part of, of the town and, you know, people had to make ends meet. And, and obviously, once you get into the Premier League, you don't necessarily have to worry about making ends meet ever again. <laughs> so it's, you know, through kicking a football, which is bizarre, but, but we're very, very fortunate to, to, to be living a time where um, that is possible. So, so what happens is I, I had to think about, like, kind of, okay, what, what, what am I going back for? What am I going back to do? You know, I'm going back pretty much to just prove to the FA that I can negate the ban. And, it, and, and I was proving things for other people, when I analysed it and I sat down and wrote, you know, a list of pros and cons about what, what I was about to do, I, I, I thought, uh, God, I'm, I'm actually just going back for, to prove other people wrong, um, not really to prove myself right. And it, that, that was kind of a, a, a realisation that, okay, that's maybe not the best motivation to go into the next junction of your life. You know, that you could... You can look at the band one or two ways as an opportunity to reset and come back stronger and, 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 and go again uh, in, a, in a different way. Or you can come back for more of the same 
and I decided at that point that okay, I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna change trajectory and I'm gonna I'm gonna make a, a a short term loss, which was you know going back and playing for maybe one, two, three seasons as a as a pro, maybe more. I probably could have played. I still think I can play now. I'm I'm still knocking out sub twenty minute five k's. So you know I, I'm confident with a bit of training. I can still earn a living somewhere. I don't know at what level. It might 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 be um, at the level that's in my head, um, possibly. Uh, but but it but it may well also be. Um, so so I, I I went to that kind of place mentally, and, and then I just thought. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think that's a, the right motivation. Yeah, it's going to cost me money in the short term because, you know, I probably could have earned, still earned, you know, good good figures as a player. Um, but the the jump to coaching and management was something I'd always wanted to do. It was something that was definitely on my agenda for the future. Um, maybe not at that moment because I didn't see myself coaching and managing at 35, 36. I thought that was too young. I thought I'd need three or four years working for another senior manager, learn the ropes, pick up the the, the, the kind of experience and then step into a, a, a head coach, senior coach, manager role um, a bit later on. You know, you've got to do your, your kind of work experience before you make a, a big jump. And, and obviously in our industry, Callum, you get one chance and if you don't get it right, you, you might never get a, a, another opportunity to, you know, to be a top level culture manager because it is such a volatile industry. So for me, it was a really, really big decision. And at that moment in time, I was, I was, I go through weird phases in my life where I, I get really into something. So at the minute I'm into gardening because uh, I'm stuck in my garden and I'm into trying to run very fast over five and 10 K, which is something I've got competitive at with a few friends and, and I, I at that time, I was into Shackleton and, and kind of that polar ex- expedition and, and kind of what went wrong and, and how they responded to it and how we managed to get so many people back off the journey. So I was really into YouTube, reading. I was doing that whilst I was out in France. I was just having a, a weird period. And, and, and then it just got me thinking that, you know, the, the, the kind of building a team um, that Shackleton had done and, and the kind of teamship and camaraderie that I'd had at Burnley, and that I didn't have at Rangers, I realised what was important for me. And I thought, you know, I can go back to Burnley, which I already know, and I've got a great working relationship with everybody. Or you can park your, your, your football and you can take a huge leap of faith. And you might, you know, because of your previous um, scrapes with the law and previous scrapes within footy, you might never get a, a, a great opportunity to work with, a football club that's got a relatively um, small footprint, but it's got big ambition and it's got really good ownership and it's got really, really clear strategies and it's got a lovely training ground and it's got um, it, it's got all the things that you need to to develop um, as a coach and to develop a, a culture that that you see being productive in the modern game um, and I thought yeah you know that really appeals to me so the more and more I thought about it the more and more I thought what's the point in going back playing everybody's going to say Joy Barton they're waiting for you to miss time and tackle they're waiting for you to say something controversial they're waiting for you know what, what am I going back for I'm going back to Burnley where I adored playing and I'm going back to 
pretty much fight at the bottom half of the table to stay in the league. I've done that for five, six, seven, eight years. I went to Rangers to try and win a title and I came close at Marseille to win the title. Of the, um, I'd won it, uh, a title at Newcastle, I'd won a title at Burnley the year before and obviously had the playoffs at, at QPR where we were successful. So for me, I wanted to be part of those teams that win more often than, than lose because it's tough when you lose as a football person. It's, it's a tough existence and especially um, if you've been... Um, you know, at that higher level, the scrutiny is kind of uh, even more intense. So for me, I was like, okay, um, I'm going to make a decision that is probably going to cause me a bit of pain in the short term um, because playing is is the best thing you can ever do. There's nothing better than playing football. I don't care what any manager, any coach says. There's nothing that quite recreates um, the playing position, but, you know, having it all on the line and, one bad pass or one good pass can can flip the tie on its head and you can be hero or villain in a short space of time. You know, something like that is is really great for cortisol and adrenaline and all those mad chemicals that people um try to try to recreate in a pub on a Saturday night with with uh with with the local drug dealer. Um or you can get from natural things like uh pushing yourself in a physical space, climbing mountains, playing football you know, really, really exerting yourself. Um, and I always found that the, the natural uh, remedies were, were certainly uh, more beneficial and, and lasted longer and were more worthwhile rather than, you know, the, the effects of having a few few pints. You feel fantastic. You feel you're the most confident man in the world. You're a top dancer. Um, you've got the best banter. You can chat to anybody on any topic for as long as you want. And then you wake up uh, the following morning and then you feel absolutely terrible and you realise you've been talking shy for uh, the better part of, of, of the previous evening because you've been um, in, alcohol-induced. So for me, it was um, it was one of those decisions that I knew would, would be hard because I love playing and, and, and that was where I really felt alive. I just love that competitive spirit and being part of those teams and, and going above and beyond for the, for the men. Um, alongside and behind you and, and nothing I don't think will ever you know uh, replicate that it'd be very very tough to ever get that back um, but then you've got you know 35 40 no matter how look well you look after your body at some point your playing head needs to flip over to okay what am I going to do with the next half of my life you know because you, you know if you're, if you're lucky you can live to 70 80 you know you're only halfway through your life's journey and you've spent the first half of it obsessive compulsive about becoming a footballer and, and it is a very very singular mindset to become high level at, at, at anything um, certainly when it's as competitive an industry as football where there's millions of kids all over the world who want to play in the Premier League and very very few of them I think it's 99.9% .9 of, of boys who, who try out don't don't quite make it so a very very tough burn through rate and um, a, a certain mindset and you you, you know uh, is, is vital for that and it's not just about ability and all the stuff I'm reading at the minute about senior management manage, management talent identification uh, <clears throat> to, to help me with me make me career now um, it certainly points to that you know ability isn't isn't just it isn't enough you need many many more factors than than just the ability and we've all probably seen kids and played with them and, and, and lived amongst them who've been phenomenal um, talents but haven't quite managed to get that into 
um, having a great career and doing fantastic things as a professional. So for, for, for my mind, it was a case of, okay, um, that part of your life's done. And that was, that was difficult, but I had to get to that decision myself. It was done. Over the 48 hours in France, I got to that point. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm shutting down my playing career. Um, I have to be happy with, with what I've achieved. I, I, and I'm now going to move into a coaching career. And, and that is the start of another journey. And, and everything I've done as a player doesn't matter because it carries absolutely no credibility with myself as a coach. So this is Joey Barton, the player's dead. Joey Barton, the coach, um, starts. And, and for, the, for an ego and, and for, your, for, for your mind, that isn't, that isn't always easy to do because a lot of us, a lot of people, like to live in the past because in the past was when you were at your fittest, your best look, you looked the best, you were playing the best football, you know, you were powerful when you were 23, 24, 25. Um, and rather than accept that father time is catching up with you um, and you're not maybe uh, the superhero that you once thought you was and, and, and you aren't capable of everything um, like you once thought you was in, in your younger days. So um, putting the putting the the football boots away and getting the the kind of um, the manager's hat on um, was was a big moment, and I look back at it now, and it and it's a it it was the right decision. It was the correct decision. I was very very fortunate that you know I I a, a, mad, a mad chain of events um, led to that moment. But I'm a strong believer in life that things happen when they're meant to happen to you. Um, and as long as you've got the, the right attitude towards it and you don't see anything as final and you don't see anything as um, so so um, difficult for you to overcome that you don't continue to, to keep moving forward, I think you, know, you can pretty much overcome anything in life if, if you have um, the why as to overcome that. And I think you know, that, that'll be tested for everybody probably now as we, we come out of this um, coronavirus um, crisis that's, that's going on all around the world. I'm interested, you've talked there about your, your playing career and switching to, to, to now a coaching career. Were you ever interested at all in pulling the boots on for Fleetwood while managing? Um, yeah, obviously your ego, your ego kicks in there and you think, I'm crying out for it. A, a first receiver in the middle of the park who can dictate the tempo of games and obviously you can try and tell people how to do that or you can do it and the, the most frustrating thing for me was I knew I was still capable of doing it um, but I knew if I did it I, I, I'd be undermining the players that I was completely and utterly reliant upon because as a manager it's not about you it's about your players you, you, you go from being a very very selfish player because that's what we all are because it's it's ultimately us who cross the white line on a Saturday and you know if I don't play well then I'm pretty sure whichever fan base I'm playing for are gonna are gonna um, make me aware of that so you become very insular in terms of yes you're trying to help your teammates and you're trying to play well to help your teammates and trying to support your teammates but ultimately you become very very uh, zoned into your own performance and, and making sure that you perform the best of your abilities then you become a manager and you realise it's a role of service. I can't kick the ball for them. I can shout on the pitch. I can give them instructions before, after, during the game, but I can't do it for them. And, 
and and that is where I think a lot of coaches can uh, get frustrated because it is over you know to the players once they cross the white line and 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 certainly the first few months of of being a manager and being a coach you find that really really difficult and you have to go away and analyze all the decisions that you make how you communicate your communication style your tone uh, your timing about when you give information are you giving too much information is it, you know you have to work out all the individuals within that so that is completely different to uh, being a player because as a player sometimes you can maybe only influence the players that you get on with maybe you can only influence a small group and um, you don't really get to influence players who maybe have a different personality type than you and that ultimately falls under the coaches or the manager so it, the, the the flip about servicing the team servicing the group um, was was is, is a steep learning curve it's not easy and you don't always get it correct um, at first attempt it's it's something that if I'm honest I've probably got wrong a lot of, lots of the time you know I've been too intense I've I've had the wrong tone I've maybe shouted at someone when they needed an arm around my shoulder I've maybe um, come in with a, 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 a kind of edge to me that isn't necessary and that's made all the players feel a little bit well the gaffer's quiet today or the gaffer's on it today or the gaffers you know and you don't realize that as a player that as the manager can set the tone for the building it can set the tone for the mood of the whole um football club um if the manager's in a bad mood as a player i didn't really pay attention to it because i was like well i'm not worried about what he's doing i've got my roles and responsibilities for the week and and because i was quite um you know dead set with, with my mindset and what the manager thought of really because I was so opinionated didn't really didn't really affect me I knew what I was going to do and what needed to be done on Saturday and most of the managers I played for I felt I knew more than so I was like okay you can say whatever you want mate but look, I know I'm, I'm going to cross the white line Saturday to play against Roy Keane, Patrick Vieira, Paul Scholes, Frank Lampard, Steven Gerrard unfortunately there's not really much that you can say that's going to help me deal with that enormous challenge that is, is going to face me at 3pm Saturday you can you can cajole me. You can say, "Come on, lads, let's you know, let's get after it." But I mean, once the whistle blows, I'm 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 trapped on a football pitch with with some of the best players in the world, and unfortunately, um, the, the the manager's encouragement isn't going to help me out of uh, that 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 sticky situation. Uh, you have to find uh, a coping strategy that is is legal, um, or certainly as close to uh, the laws of the game as we possibly can sometimes, and. Um, I think as a manager, understanding that, understanding that concept is, is, is key to getting your ideas across to your players. Because I think once you, the players know that, all right, he's not joining. I don't join in training ever um, because the way I trained and the way I played isn't conducive to being a good coach and a good manager because it was right on that competitive edge. And, I think me steaming into challenges with me players wouldn't be. Uh, um, my playing career is done. So why am I why am I still honing skills for something I'm never going to use? You know, I don't really do like when I ever played in testimonials or charity games. I played them like they were normal games because I don't really do non-competitive football. Uh, every, when I play five aside with my mates on a Monday, now it's it's mega competitive. Um, and um, that's the way I, I see the game of football. I just love the comp competition, the mental, psychological, physical 
um, aspect of, of a game of, of football and all the challenges that that brings. So for me to join in as a coach with my players would be, I think, doing them a disservice because that would mean I'm not concentrating on helping them become better. I'm not concentrating on the training session itself to see if I can adjust the training session to make it more efficient for the players so that they can learn more to help themselves uh, have better careers and, 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 and become better players because ultimately that is my job as a coach. My job as a coach isn't to get on the training ground with them and show them what a good player I was because unfortunately for the lads, that doesn't help them on a Saturday. Um, and occasionally Hilly joins in, Andy Mangan, Baz Nick, they'll join in to make the numbers up, the coaches, but very, very um, seldom do I do. I, I mean, I, I try to keep the playing, Joey Barton, the player, away from... Um, you know, Joey Barton, the coach and the manager. Um, I don't really talk much about who I've played. You know, I don't really talk much to the players about, you know, um, games I've played in. And, and all we try and do is talk to them about how they can improve themselves because, you know, the, the game of football moves at such a pace that, you know, in football terms, as a player, I'm a dinosaur because I haven't kicked the ball in the Premier League for three years. So the game's evolved so much in a three-year space that if I'm going back and using my playing days as a reference point it's already three years out of date so we've got to be ahead of the players I've got to be you know if I'm, if I'm wanting to manage at, at, at a high level and, and, and fulfil what I believe is my managerial coaching capacity or potential then, then there's no point me trying to go back to, to, to use myself as a, as a reference tool from, from the past because it's already outdated so I'm always about you know, the best coaches in the world, you know, your Guardiola's, your Klopp's, your Tuchel's, your, um, you know, your, your, your kind of Champions League level coaches that are at the forefront of, of where the games are and are teaching all of us um, different things about, about, about football. What, what are the ambitions for you then as a coach? You've, you've clearly talked about the fact that you were ambitious as a player, you played at the highest level as a player. Is the is the highest level of coaching the ultimate ambition for you? And is that something you believe if you continue on the trajectory you're on now that you will achieve? Look, look for me, it's um, it's relatively early days. I mean, you know, when I took the job, Sean Dice said to me actually that uh, you're not, you're not, you can't class yourself as a manager until you've done three seasons. Um, so, so I was 18 months, 19 months in before we, we obviously got caught cut short on this. So I'll, I'll reserve um, calling myself a manager until I, I kind of reach that milestone. And I think that's fair enough because we do have a lot of people who, 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 who take clubs on a short you know, tenure and it, and it doesn't quite work out for them. So I can see the, the kind of um, thinking behind that. And, you know, we didn't, we didn't um, get the result I thought our performance deserved that Pompey away which was our last game of Fleetwood because Coventry is seven points ahead of us with the game in hand and I thought if we want to win the division uh, we needed to win at, at, at Portsmouth we played Sunderland and Portsmouth before and drew 2-2 and drew um, what did we draw we draw 2-2 twice I don't remember the days just put so so but they were they were disappointing for us because we were on such a great run that we were, we, were, we were trying to chase down Coventry. Obviously, when the league resumes, we're open to pick that back up. But for us, it, it, it's all about winning. And my belief as a coach is, you know, aim f every season you can win the league. However unrealistic that may seem, that should be the mindset. And you should do everything you can to work towards that. Hey, look, if we haven't got the finances or the players or things conspire against us, but that doesn't mean your aim shouldn't be the absolute highest standard available. 
Um, and that, that's what I try and do as a coach. I try to hold, firstly, myself and my staff to the highest attainable standard for our group. And, and by default, uh, or by osmosis sometimes, you know, you can raise the, 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 the level of the whole football club. And um, we, we talked about when we, we were going in about creating a, a culture and not a cult. And I think this is the ultimate test. This moment, this layoff period, will be the ultimate test for, for any culture. If your culture is properly uh, organised and your players are, they know why they're doing, you know, the extra training that they've got to do at home and why they've got to eat right and why they've got to look after the bodies and maintain the bodies um, away from the manager overseeing them and the coaches overseeing them every single day, then then your culture coming out of, you know, a time of crisis shouldn't be as affected by a culture where it is a cult, where you know the manager is telling you everything, every moment, and the minute the manager turns away, standard slip. Um, so for me, I'm seeing this as a, a, a unique opportunity to gauge our culture as a football club, and you know the, the early warning signs. And we won't know till we get back, and we get back up and running. But for me, I'm really, really comfortable about the culture we have at our club, uh, Fleetwood, and. Um, in, in a time of crisis, there's two, two mindsets. You can feel sorry for yourself and hark on about all the things you're missing, or you can prepare for when the crisis is over and make sure your group hit the ground running and you take uh, full advantage of this layoff. So full advantage to firstly reenact with your family again and become a family man because football takes us away from our families and especially me with a young family for prolonged periods of time. And you don't really... Um, give your kids the time that they need because you've got 28 young professionals to to think about how you help them become better uh, at this moment we haven't got that um so at the, at this minute you know it, it, it is a an opportunity to 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 re-establish connections with your kids and, and with your family and with with your people uh that are close to you because you know, for all everything you've got, money, properties, all these things, it doesn't matter at this moment. What matters is the house that you're living in and the people that you're living in that house with because we're all on social isolation. Your, your money, your watches, your, your nice clothes, your nice car, it makes no, you can't, you can't do anything in it. So hopefully, and I've known that for a while, so hopefully this resets loads of people to realise actually what is important in life. Um, it's, it's, it's connections and relationships with people and I found that out in, in in my local area because I volunteered because I'm fit and healthy and I just want to I want to get out the house and I've got a back garden to maintain which I've got uh, control of got into my garden and planting the kids but then on the end of that you've got loads of energy so that's why I've got into the exercise and I'm I'm somebody who's constantly on the go to read reading only for trails I don't play computer games or anything like that so I have to keep myself my body mind active. So uh, I volunteered for the, um, the Royal Volunteers when it first came out, and I think it was a couple of thousand people, and I'd been waiting for jobs to do. And after a, a, you know, a period, I got my first job, and it was round the corner. And it, it could be all different things. And there's round the corner from me, um, long, you, I wouldn't know this living here, and I've been, lived here for 15 years in the house. I mean, and all, what, you know, I've always had this house, but I've played for other clubs everywhere. You don't, I don't. I don't. I didn't know my neighbours. Some of my neighbours' names, up until this coronavirus kicked in, didn't know. I've never had a conversation with them because we're living like a cul-de-sac. And uh, weirdly, you've you've you fell back into like sense of community. And 
I get this um, from the volunteer service because it's just trying to give people a hand who are vulnerable, you know, um, whether it's picking a prescription up for older people or running the shops for them if they haven't got a car and they can't get out and just stuff that they, they normally do but can't do because of what's going on. So I go around the other day to, he turned out to be a, a lovely old boy, Evertonian, um, lives on his own, no kids, missus has passed away and he, he, he had a load of washing but because he, he, he lives on his own, he usually goes to laundrette and he hasn't been able to go to laundrette because they're closed with the coronavirus. So he's not, he said, I can wash my clothes by hand, but all my bedding and, and my towels, I can't really do by hand. I've said, listen, give us them. We'll take them now. My missus does the washing for our house anyway. We bang the washing on. And, and it's that kind of thing. But obviously, I've never met that guy. So I, I go round, I stand on the end of his path, I give him his washing back. We have a gab of our footy. He's just a, an old fella who's on his own and he hasn't got the family support network that some of us are very, very fortunate to have. And I'm thinking, wow, that, that is, you know, that, that's what we should all be doing. And it got me thinking, like, what is his neighbours doing? Because he lives in a street where there's about six or seven different people all around him. Like, well, how's, not, how's he not got the ability to go, do, can you do me a favour? You know, where I grew up, you could knock next door and ask for a bag of sugar or a few tea bags or a bit of bread till till they went to shops the next day. But the world we live in now, that, that's not common practice. Yeah. It's, you know, we don't know the people that we live amongst. And hopefully, that if any good can come out of this terrible situation, you know, those are the kind of things, the sense of community, the sense of, hey, we're all in this together. I know, I know it doesn't feel like that all the time, but you know, we need to all get on. The world's a much better place when, when people care about other people. Um, and, and I think, you know, for me, I, 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 I've used this time as productively as I can to try and better myself as a person. And, um, you know, I would never have got that opportunity had it not been for football seasons closing down. So I always look at everything as, as a chance to improve or a chance to, to do something positive. You know, sometimes you fuck up and you get it wrong. I've done that more than anyone. But my response has always been, okay, well, there's no point. I can't unfix that. So can I not? Just try and I just try and keep moving forward and try and stay positive. And I don't really allow or try not to as much as I possibly can allow outside influences and negative people and people who just want to go back to the past and your reputation and this happened there and aren't you shit because of it. I just don't deal with that. I'm just like, right, I'm moving forward. And when I move forward, you know, good things tend to happen in my life. So I'm just going to focus on that and focus my energy on uh, the people and uh, and you know, the, the, the community, you know, whether it's my football club of Fleetwood, helping in, 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 in there, people on a daily basis or, or in the community in, in which I live now. So if we all do that, I think, you know, the world will be a better place. And I think that's all we can do. All we can do is affect that small, you know, group of people that we influence. And, you know, for some of us, you know, with a bigger presence in terms of like, a, a you know, a 3 million fucking Twitter followers or whatever, you have an opportunity to maybe influence uh, a, a bigger group of people. And, um, you know, I'm not perfect. I don't profess to be. I, I, I'm not better than anybody in any way, shape or form. I'm just somebody who's, who, who's, who's trying to inspire people on a daily basis to say, look, hey, if I can fucking do it, you know, any of you can do it. If, and I'm no, no, no more gifted, no more special than, than anybody else at management in effect. Everybody, when I got the job, thought I was going to be a shite manager because I was a, this type of player. 
um, and, and, and hey, I still may, may well in a few years turn out to be a shite manager. I don't know yet, but but at this moment in time, I seem to be holding my own um, uh, and trying to get better on a daily basis, and that's co- co- correlated by the team's results and, and the group we're building. And I think that that should be your focus. If you focus on what people say you can't do, you'll never get fucking anything done. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song